uh, you can pray for me and just be uh, patient with me this morning. Those of you who know me, you know I have migraines, and uh, sometimes a migraine along with bright lights and uh, volume can, you know, it's it's not the best thing in the world. So I'm happy to be here. I'm excited to open God's Word. I'm excited to worship, Uh, but just show me a little patience this morning, and I would greatly appreciate it. Last week, we were able to summarize our Old Testament and to recognize that the whole revelation of God had built up to the moment in which God himself, in order to make himself truly known to us and reconcile us to himself, took on flesh and dwelt among us, lived as we lived. And we know from the gospel story that he will ultimately take on the death penalty that was for us and would conquer that death and offer us the hope of salvation. It it was just an exciting thing to see the whole of the Old Testament take on flesh. What an amazing thing that was. And so that was last week. And this week, as we recognize that Jesus, the Word who is flesh, God who is man, this week we get to read about his teaching. Now, I'll tell you, we're reading through the Bible in a year. That means we're reading through very quickly. And so um, you could spend years and years just preaching and teaching and reading and studying through the Gospels. And we're doing that, you know, like in a month. And that's, that's really fast. One of the things I would encourage you is, especially if you're new to Tri-Cities Baptist Church, if you'll go back in our media library online, last year we spent the whole year preaching through the gospel of Mark and through the teachings of Christ. It's a really, really great resource. There's all kinds of other uh, resources available to help you study the teachings of Jesus. And I would challenge you to immerse yourself in the gospels, especially if you're a new believer. And so we get to hear the story become flesh, and now the very Word of God spoken by the God-man. That's just a really neat thing. And so this morning, that's where we find ourselves. We will spend most of our time in a very famous sermon uh, of Jesus. It's known as the Sermon on the Mount. And if you uh, have a Bible, you're going to follow along. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5 and chapter 6. And as you turn, I want to tell you a story real quick to set a context. And I'm going to be honest, we will spend a lot of time uh, setting the context this morning. Uh, Because what I'd like for us to see is a theme that's not hidden, but a theme that is very relevant and very contextual to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It's an important theme, and it really jumps off the page at us. Uh, But I don't know if you're just going quick verse by verse and you're really breaking everything down and you're spending months that you would catch this theme because it's such an overarching theme. But to get our minds there, I want to ask you a question, but I want to set up the question with a story. 16 years or so in uh, just pastoral ministry and you see uh, all kinds of situations happen and some that are incredibly joyful, some that are sorrowful, some that 
are amazing um, just acts of service and acts of love, and you see amazing sin as well. At a previous church I was at, we had uh, just begun to reach out to a young couple, and um, they had just come to know the Lord. They had not been believers very long, and they lived in kind of a rough part of town. And one day, uh, a man broke into their house, shot the husband, and raped his wife, left the husband for dead. Over the coming months, the husband lived and recovered, and they began to work through all of this stuff, and eventually they caught and captured the man that did this. As many things like that go, months and months goes by, and there will eventually be a trial. You hear about things like this, but when you know the people, you know they're hurt, you know what it's cost them. To hear that husband who was shot Stand up in a courtroom and tell that man, I love you and I forgive you. I pray for you and I want you to know Jesus. Not in vindictive, now go serve your time. But in a genuine love that I think if he could, I think the man would have reached out and gave the other man a hug. He would have embraced him. He genuinely loved him. Not because emotionally he felt like loving him, but because his definition of love compelled him to love him. And this is my question for you. If that happened to you, could you tell that man, I forgive you? Because I love you. See, that is our question this morning as we begin to look at the teachings of Jesus. Jesus said that you will know my disciples by their fruits, by the way that they live. And Scripture also teaches us that when we are in Christ, the old self is buried, and behold, we become a new creature. And Scripture teaches us that our minds are transformed by the gospel. We are compelled to love as Jesus' followers. Jesus is teaching, a few quick disclaimers before we begin about Jesus' teaching, is you need to know that Jesus' teaching is very controversial in his day. It is confrontational. It is so extreme at times that the people who are there listening to him often pick up rocks to throw at him, to stone him. They seek to plan to kill him. Jesus' teaching is incredibly polarizing. There's part of me that, I'll be honest, as a believer and as a pastor and teacher in America today, I feel that that is not so much 
the case in our church, that we've bought into a view of love that says love is more if I am kind of friendly to you and nice to you, and nice to you means whatever it means to you, and so I just need to be your buddy, and we're so driven by success, and our churches are so much measured by the number of people that are in them, that if we just kind of become, in that sense, all kind of kind things to people, to whatever that means to them, more people come, and so we see ourselves as more success. Jesus was incredibly divisive. Throughout his ministry, over and over again, people will say, this teaching is hard. Who can understand this? Who can do this? And they would leave time and time again. It's difficult. It's polarizing. And with all this in mind, I, I want to kind of give back and give you a few deductive statements that we'll unpack as we go through. First, Jesus' followers must hold a high view of love. Last week we talked about a high view of God's revelation, the Bible. This week we're talking about a high view of love. Second, we cannot be like Jesus unless we are willing to love like Jesus. Those of you who like to tweet things out in service, you know, because that's one to tweet. Listen, we cannot be like Jesus unless we are willing to love like Jesus. And third, we cannot place saving faith in the gospel and reject love. You can't do it. You cannot do it. Love is an essential component of the Jesus follower. It's essential. It's there. And hate is an incompatible worldview with saving faith. They're incompatible. They don't work together. And the short answer, the the why that's the case, is because love is a core characteristic of God. Love isn't just something over here on the side. Love is a very core characteristic of who God is. To reject absolute love and its its true meaning is to reject a huge portion of who God is. See, it's not just the emotional result. It's not this thing on the side. It is core to his characteristic. I'll give you an example. What if I looked at you and said, you know, I like Paul. Man, Paul's a great guy. I really like Paul. I just can't stand his personality. See, there are some things, that if you say them, and if I say I don't like his personality, but I like him, you kind of scratch your head. It's not saying, like, I really like Paul. I just, you know, I don't like his hair. That's different. But when I say I, don't, I like Paul, but I don't like his personality, I'm really contradicting myself. It's kind of an oxymoron. That's what we see here. When we reject love, we are rejecting who God is. It's more than that. And so love is also one of those things that everyone thinks they understand. If you ask a kid, what is love? It's awesome uh, YouTube clip, you can go look it up if you want, uh, Sesame Street, Oscar the Grouch, I think, pops up out of the trash can, and he asks the kids, what is love? And all the kids are little, so they're all giving kind of concrete explanations of love. Love is hugs and kisses. You know, love makes you feel good inside. Kids think they understand love. Teenagers certainly think they understand love, right? Adults, they think they understand love. Just ask the newly married couple. They, they get it. They claim it. We get it. 
You ask the person who's, who's in their 40s and divorced, and they're going to tell you, you know what? I get love. You ask the senior who's been married for, you know, 55 years, and they're going to tell you, we understand love. We all think we understand love. And the truth is we are all pursuing a deeper understanding of what love is. I don't think it's something that we're ever going to fully arrive at. But to learn and to be challenged in it, we must first, whether you're young or whether you're old, back away from it and acknowledge you may not have it all figured out. And we certainly aren't necessarily applying it to the fullness of Christ. Love is not experientially defined. In other words, you don't just learn what love is through experience. It certainly helps, but it's not absolute. Let me give you an example. If I took you and set you in front of a high-level calculus problem, and I put it on a whiteboard, and I said, go. And you tried. You tried to remember your algebra when you were a kid and put all that stuff together, and you come up, and I just sit there quietly. I don't say anything. I don't teach anything. I just let you give it a shot, and you give it a shot, and you get it wrong. I said, that's not it. Try again. Try again. And after a hundred tries, you have a hundred wrong answers. And through all your experience, do you know what you've learned? Those 100 answers out of the infinity possible, it's not, that's not it. That's not exactly the most efficient way of learning. Let me give you a different example. I'm convinced there are some people that if Jesus could sit in front of them in their insecurity and defensiveness, if Jesus were to speak to them on something like parenting, the most competitive sport in the world, they would look at Jesus and go, well, he doesn't have any children. Right? And you laugh at that thought. But the reason we would love and cherish parenting advice from Jesus who has no children is because we recognize truth is absolute. Experience helps, but truth is absolute. And so love is an attribute of God. It is an absolute, listen, directly connected to his unchanging character. It is not necessarily what we want it to be. It is what it is. And so the more we understand God, the more we understand love. For this reason, as we read through the teachings of Jesus, listen, as he makes himself known, And as he makes the Father known, and as the Holy Spirit intercedes and works in our heart and indwells us as the believer, enlightening us, love should jump off the pages of the scriptures that we read. And so, I talked about the confrontational, polarizing teaching of Jesus. It will not be missed in the section that we will read. There's two verses that kind of give us a theme, that I, and it's the last kind of set-up point before we begin. Stay with me for just a moment. First, Jesus says to the people in a section that we will read, he says to them, what more are you doing than others? We'll read that in a minute. But basically, he says this, what makes you any different? Now, I know our mother told us we are all special, we're all unique, And that's true in comparison to one another. But in an absolute reality, 
to our creator, we have no value, we have no worth, we have no meaning apart from what the creator gives us. What does that mean? That means all of my value is directly connected to what God has made me to be. So my value and my worth is that I am an image bearer of God. That I am an ambassador now in his family. This is what gives me value and worth. It's not even my associations and my friendships here. It's not my accomplishments on this earth. It is my connection to Christ. So why does that matter? And why would Jesus make such a polarizing statement? Because in its connection to love, listen, you yourself, left to yourself, are not entitled to love. No one, you're not due anyone's love. You're certainly not due God's love, left to yourself. That's an important thing for us to get in our minds as we look further into our passage this morning. The second thing he tells them after telling them we're not unique, we, like everyone else, it's not like we're special so God loves us more, is he says to them in chapter 6, don't be like them. Don't be like them. So not only must the Jesus follower recognize that all of my value and worth is related to God, the Jesus follower must also recognize that to follow Christ will make me countercultural. I will not fit in. I will not be like them. I will not be like the popular opinion. To follow Christ means I will be different. He goes on later in the Gospels and even praying to the Father, he says, the world is going to hate them. And he says it with sincerity and with sadness, but understanding that is the cost of Christ. And he says, they don't hate you for you, they hate you because you are mine, because you are with me. So he says to them, don't be like them. A follower of Christ is going to live counter to the culture around them. And so, with all this kind of disclaimer, let's look at Matthew chapter 5. The Sermon on the Mount begins with a section known as the Beatitudes. It speaks to kingdom living. It speaks to discipleship and what it's like to live in a pursuit of who God has called us to be. He goes on from that and he talks about the fact that we are the salt of the earth and we are the light of the world. That in Christ we, watch, this is an amazing thing, this is a neat thing, this is a discipleship thing. Remember, revelation of God, God making himself known, that we now in Christ share in this amazing mission to make God known. We through him, get to be part of lighting up the world, as John described to us last week. Then he goes on to a section in which he reminds us that Jesus came to fulfill the law. Everything that has built up to this moment, Jesus isn't saying that stuff doesn't matter. Instead, he's saying, through me, I fulfill all of that. It's, it's a reminder that you and I and Every other person who's ever lived could have never done that. We could have never been righteous. We could have never met the standard of God. But Jesus did. He has. He's met that standard. 
And he ends that section, again, verse 20, and he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, we have this real negative view of the scribes and the Pharisees, and that makes sense. I understand why we would have that. But I want you to understand, in terms of the pursuit of the law, and working, and trying to get it all right, and dot every I, and cross every, all that kind of stuff, they worked really hard at being religious. They tried the best they could try. No one in Israel would have argued that. And so when Jesus would have said, verse 20, the thought would have been, man, if they can't do it, how do I stand a chance? And the point is, Jesus is doing that work for us. And then he begins to get into the section that we're going to examine today. And it's the section I like to call the you've heard it said section. He will begin his statements with you've heard it said. And so first he goes, you know, you've heard it said. In other words, this. What I'm about to say is going to be opposite or different than the cultural perception. What culture has told you is this, but I'm going to tell you this. What your grandmother told you might be this, but I'm going to tell you this. What you think is righteous and faithful living, you think it's this, but it's really this. We, we struggle with this today in our, in our own lives. This isn't anything that's just removed back to them. We have so many things that we are constantly battling with in our church and battling with within our country and within our community. Everything from homosexuality, which there is coming a day where the homosexuality and acceptance of that is going to become so great that the pressure on the church to take a stand will just mount and mount. The Bible teaches us homosexuality is a sin. It's a sin. By the way, it's not a sin so great that Jesus can't save. Right? But it's still sin. The way our culture defines marriage isn't the way the Bible defines marriage. I'll give you one that's going to start hitting closer to home. Like, the way we think of divorce, even in the church in America, isn't the way the Bible teaches divorce. When we think of things like, let me give you a, 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 when we think of things like patriotism and the fact that somehow God loves Americans more than he loves Chinese, I'm just going to tell you, that's not, that's not a biblical truth at all the bible would teach us that all of us regardless of your nationality listen you are aliens in a foreign land because we belong to christ that doesn't mean listen that doesn't mean i can't be proud that this is my country and i can't be so incredibly thankful for the men and women who fight to give me freedom to stand here and worship that's truth i am that we should be that But it also means to us that we don't look at the world somehow like they're lesser than us. That doesn't make sense either. We go on through these things. We think about our worship services. I read an article a few weeks ago and how over the last 30 years, the number one reason people leave a church is because of style of music. That's not, that's not, there's heresy there. There's just a style. They just prefer one thing over another preference. Think about the way we view our money, the way we view success. My point is, if Jesus is here, he could sit in front of us and easily say, you've heard it said. 
your culture has you to think this. And he begins each of these statements that way. And first he looks at anger. And he says, some of you are angry with your brothers and sisters, and you come to worship and to make sacrifices to God. He says, stop. Stop. That doesn't even make sense. First go right what is wrong with your brother. Then come back and worship. Some of you are here and you have bitterness and anger in your heart toward another. Can I tell you? Go get it right. Go get it right. It might even be better for you right now to get up out of the service, go pick up a phone, or go grab somebody if they're in the building and get it right. This is what Jesus said. This becomes before worship. Then he goes on and he talks about lust. And they're talking about adultery. And Jesus says, listen, you're so quick to jump on that. But do you know that if you lust in your heart, the sin is still there. It's still rooted in who you are. He goes further and he talks about divorce. And they had got in the habit of issuing divorce and divorce. And Jesus says, listen, this is the way it's supposed to be. Marriage. At its core is a picture of the gospel. And can I tell you, in the gospel, Jesus never divorces us. And he goes on, he begins to break these, break these things down. He talks about making oaths or promises. And he talks about how you've heard it said to make a promise this way. And Jesus says, listen, you don't have any authority to make any promise, period, because you can't control anything. Not one of you can change the color of a hair on your head. I think this is, by the way, excluding hair dye, right? He goes, you don't have authority. You don't have power. You can't change these things. So don't promise later what you don't know if you can deliver or not. And then we get to verse 38. And the next two sections are the sections we're going to look at this morning. And do so very quickly, right? You've heard it said... An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who begs from you. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. He says, listen, you've heard this law, that you've heard this saying, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which was designed to protect them from unfair punishment, basically. And instead, they turned it into a motive to get revenge. He says, this isn't right. This isn't the intent. He talks about the insulting slap and turning your head. And listen, it doesn't mean that Christians are just to be pushovers. That's not the point. The point is, the motive of revenge, of justifying through God's word, your anger, your retaliation. It's not right, he says. Again, catching the underlying theme of love here. There's a a story of the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher. And Jesus says back to him, why do you say I'm good? There's no one good except God. And the question is, do you really think I'm God. The point is, sometimes we like to think of ourselves as the good guys and those people out there, whoever they may be, as the bad guys. Can I just be real honest with you? We are all the bad guys. We're all the bad guys. 
And if we understand that, again, it's going to help us understand our theme of love. And he goes on in verse 43, and he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, listen, culture's saying one thing. I'm going to define love differently. Listen to what he says. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Again, theme, God making himself known is calling us to be like him. To be like Christ means I will love like him. And that means I will love my enemies. Paul reminds us later in Romans that we, we in our sin are the enemies of God. And yet God loved us. He says, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust. In other words, God blesses all and God shows love to all. Nobody merits it. It's not like there's just these righteous people over here and they get, you know, beautiful sunshine and the evil people just walk under a cartoon cloud. That doesn't happen. Verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? In other words, in their day, the worst of the worst. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? In other words, everyone can follow their emotions. Everyone can love those who love them. That's just following your emotion. Being a Jesus follower calls us to set our emotion, to set our affection, to purpose it. And so he says then in verse 48, You, therefore, must be perfect, perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Years of ministry, I'll tell you, one of the hardest things is getting people to understand love as the Bible defines it and not as the TV defines it or not as their relationships define it. The best way to say it is this, that love is perfect. It is perfect. And our pursuit of it must be the pursuit of that perfection. And love is perfect because it is the characteristic of who God is. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. It's love. This is why Jesus said this is the greatest commandment. You get this, you kind of get it all. Love. So quickly and close Seven big observations, they're going to be fast, okay? Love is the testimony of our abiding relationship with Jesus. It is a testimony of our abiding relationship with Jesus. What does that mean? Through the way we love people, we show and demonstrate the gospel. While we were enemies of God, while we were the worst of worst, while we had so wronged him, he loved us. He loved us. And when we love others, and we love him with the same reckless abandon, with the same passion, with the same pursuit, we model the very gospel that we claim. Second, love is not prejudice. It is not prejudice to gender, or to age, or to color, or to nationality, or to culture, or association. God's love falls on everyone, and let me tell you, we are commanded to do the same. 
I'm going to be sensitive, but I'm going to say something that's been bugging me for months. I'm just going to say it, and it'll make some of you upset, and I'm just going to own it. It will. Can I tell you, you can fly whatever flag you want to fly outside your house and on your car, and I don't think any flag is wrong in and of itself, all right? But can I tell you, there are brothers and sisters out there who you have a responsibility to. And there is a lost world out there who looks to you to define the gospel. Romans 14 says, do not let what is your freedom destroy the work of the gospel in someone's life. That's a paraphrased version of it, but that's it. Read Romans 14. Can I tell you, we grew up in an area, I grew up here, I'm from here. There is prejudice around us. We must fight and work to overcome it. The love of God is not prejudice. It falls on every person regardless of the color of their skin and it does whatever it can to overcome the stumbling blocks that would ever ever prevent us from being interpreted as anything but loving love one another not just the people who are like you love one another third love is not merited it is not something that we earn we did not earn god's love listen do not treat others as if they have to earn yours You are to love every one of them unconditionally because that is what the gospel has done for us. And a Jesus follower above all should understand love this way. Love is not a contract. It's not an exchange. He says pray for those who persecute you. He doesn't say stop loving them and challenge them. He says pray for them. Fifth, love is perfect. We talked about this. He says, you therefore must be perfect. Love is absolute. It is a characteristic of who God is. And we as believers must choose to live our life. We must pursue to live our life like him. Like him. It is not an acceptable thing to say, you know what? I know I'm supposed to love him, but I just don't. That is the same as saying, I know Jesus is the Son of God, but I just don't want to believe that today. Let me tell you something. It's core to who he is. We must love him and those he has commanded us to love because they are his image bearer. Number six, love leads to worship. When you turn the page and you continue the sermon into Matthew chapter six, he will begin to talk about giving and praying and fasting. And love leads us to all of these things. Love leads us into worship. Number seven, love leads to trust. The back end of chapter six, he begins to talk about anxiety and worrying about what comes tomorrow. He says in verse 33, but seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. We don't control any of this. Here's the nervous thing about it. Watch, stay with me for just a moment. Some of you worry the truth of who God is and the trust in his love for you should keep you from worry. Some of you worry about loving others, what they may do to you and how they may respond. Listen, the truth of who God is and his love for you should keep you from anxiety and should keep you from worry and should make you charged to love. 
So we're going to close this way. I'm going to ask the guys to come on up, and they're going to lead us in a song. But the challenge is this. Love God. Love the people he created. Live out the gospel. And if I lost you this morning, I hope that John's words will make it come together. Let me read to you from 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, and then we will pray. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not know God or does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. Church, may we be a church that loves God and the people he created in his own image with reckless abandon and passion and pursuit. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that as we sing this song, we would be challenged, that you would take over our minds and our hearts, that you would convict us. Lord, I pray that if there's people in our lives who we are being unkind to, that we are bitter toward, that we have hatred toward, Lord, I pray that you would convict us. And this morning, I pray that you would challenge us to show the love of Jesus. Lord, most of all, I pray that you would direct our hearts to love you. There are so many in this room who I know love you. Help us to love you more. And may this song be a song of praise, but Lord, may it also be a time of reflection, of conviction that would not let us leave this room with ideas in our minds, but your word in our heart that changes our very actions. Lord, I love you. Help me love you more. Lord, I love your people. Lord, help me love them more. In the name of your son, Jesus, who modeled perfect love.